Rick. G'day everyone, great to see you. Ben Gray is my name. And uh, if you're on our live stream, you can click in the description of the video to let us know that you're here and to fill out a bit of a welcome card. If you're in the room, you can do that by scanning the QR code in front of you or by coming and having a conversation at the end of church. That would be great too. Why don't we pray and uh, then we'll look at 1 Peter together. Our Father, we thank you for these moments that we have together now and ask that as we come to your word, that your living word would give us a living faith in the Lord Jesus. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. Uh, I was watching a triathlon on the internet during the week uh, in America and uh, as I watched as a preacher, <laughs> I thought, this is a great illustration for 1 Peter. Uh, I thought, this is a picture of what 1 Peter is doing for us. Um, I was watching this triathlon and this uh, very fast woman uh, was, you know, running off ahead. And uh, as she did, the commentators on the TV, the people on the loudspeaker at the race, the crowd and most of the people around her thought she had taken a wrong turn. And so the officials were holding up disqualification signs. The loudspeakers were saying, you need to stop, you're out. The TV commentators were saying, oh no, she's mucked it up. And as she kept running and not stopping, occasionally raising her hands like this, what are you talking about? She decided to keep going to make it to the finish line, at which point the race director said, no, she was fine. Had she had stopped and been disqualified, she would have missed her payday uh, and, you know, the glory of finishing. Uh, but she kept going despite all the voices around her and the pressure to stop. The letter of 1 Peter is written to Christians under pressure to say, keep going. Plenty of voices around the world and maybe in your life and maybe inside your own head that say you should stop. You should stop trusting Jesus. You should throw in the towel. It's really not worth it. Peter writes to these Christians under pressure with the true grace of God, chapter 5, verse 12, in order that you might stand firm in it. And he writes in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus has given us new birth into a living hope through his resurrection life. And those are the things that are to keep a Christian going, the living hope that Jesus' resurrection gives and the true grace of God that we stand in. These are the things that will keep you going to the end, in order that on the last day you will be vindicated when you're welcomed into the joy of Jesus' eternal future, well done, good and faithful servant. For the Christian in this life, it's not about wielding political power or social control or cultural change, but it's about giving witness to the true grace of God and the resurrection life and hope 
that only Jesus can give. So here's our sermon for today. The summary sentence is up on the screen. We live in light... Sorry, Levi. Next, go two forward. We live in light of the resurrection life of Jesus with hope-shaped character, with hope-filled words and with hope-directed patience. The first thing that we are challenged with in chapter 3, verse 8, is the hope-shaped character uh, that we are to live in light of Jesus' resurrection life in. So have a look at verse 8 with me again. Peter says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's an extended quote that Peter gives us from Psalm 34. And if you went back and read Psalm 34 this afternoon, you'd see it was written by King David under enormous pressure. Under enormous pressure to give up under enormous pressure to throw in the towel. But he entrusted himself to the faithful God. He sought peace. He sought to do good. He sought to keep his lips from deceitful speech, knowing that God's ears are attentive to his prayers. That he is being heard by his loving Heavenly Father. And of course, that psalm is fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Under pressure, under persecution, entrusting himself to his heavenly Father. And if that's to be us, then, as he says in verse 8, we need to be like-minded, sympathetic, loving each other with humility and compassion. You remember in chapter 2, verse 1, he Uh, talks about the negative things that we're to get rid of as we fight the sin that is inside of us, the slander and malice and envy. And it's like he gives us the replacement list here in chapter 3, verse 8. Get rid of the slander, malice and envy and instead put on the humble, compassionate love. Instead of malice, go with compassion not wanting to brutally bring people down, but thoughtfully lift them up. Instead of slander, go with sympathy, not being quick to impute wrong motives or speak ill of people, but instead giving the benefit of the doubt, seeking to take a walk in someone else's shoes, seeking to consider the kind of pressure and stress that other people are going through in their circumstances. Be quick to encourage and slow to criticise, which makes total sense, right, if this is the true grace of God. If the whole Christian life and Jesus' eternal future is about his infinite kindness and saving grace, then the overflow of the hope that we have as Christians ought to be gracious lives and gracious words 
people of grace who seek to encourage and build up, not divide and tear down. The last two years has been a world, I think, that we've experienced that is increasingly divided, increasingly anxious. That's not getting better anytime soon, is it? Fighting for our rights, fighting over restrictions and priorities and politics. And in the midst of that world that's often exacerbated and amplified through vehicles like social media, I saw a pastor post in the midst of the chaos of these last few years. I think Christians ought to give each other a break. In the midst of all that chaos, what if the church was not just a place where people received grace, but dished it out in abundance? Because here's the thing, under pressure, it's very easy for the worst to come out. I was talking to someone during the week who sounded like they were me talking to me saying, I feel like when I'm under pressure, my wife and kids cop it. When the pressure builds up for me and my anger and frustration comes out, it comes out in the wrong direction, in the wrong quantity against the wrong people. It's easy under pressure to be selfish and survival focused instead of gracious and other person focused. Under pressure, Peter says to the living church, you can show Jesus to the world by growing in this hope-shaped character. Being compassionate and humble and patient with one another. We live in the light of the resurrection life of Jesus with hope-shaped character And secondly, with hope-filled words, have a look at verse 13. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Again, Peter's expectation is that Christians will face opposition. Christians will be told repeatedly that even if you are following the Lord Jesus and doing good, that that is wrong. That's more than just a waste of time that is harmful and stupid. And for these first century Christians, the pressure that they were experiencing as well was to bow their knee to the emperor. And they were an alternative community suggesting that, no, the emperor's not in charge of me and everything in this universe. He's not divine and worthy of my worship. Only Jesus is. 
And so Peter's encouragement to them is, do not fear their threats, but in response, fear Jesus, revere him, set him apart in your heart as Lord, and be driven by and controlled by that reality, not by the fear and anxiety that comes from external threats, but from the inner reality and the universal reality that Jesus is Lord, the reigning King of the universe who deserves all allegiance and honour and glory. And if you are to do that, if you were to have an alternative hope that doesn't place your hope in the things and the peoples and the structures of this world, but instead has a hope that is, is in Jesus and his perfect future, his eternal kingdom of grace and kindness, or even people who speak against you, even people who suggest that that's dumb and a waste of time, may be compelled to ask, but why? Why do you have such a hope? Why are you so not interested in so many of the things of this world, the values and directions that this world challenges you to go on? And Peter says, when that happens, as you trust Jesus as Lord, be prepared to not only believe in your heart, but confess with your mouth that he is the risen, reigning and returning Lord of the universe. And do that with gentleness and respect. The, the methods need to match the message the message of God's grace to us in Jesus needs to come through people who are gracious. And so I wonder, A, is your life one that is increasingly shaped by the hope that Jesus gives? Growing more humble growing more compassionate, growing ever more sympathetic and understanding towards people and therefore giving you opportunities to also speak words of hope and grace into the lives of those around you. It's the consistent message of 1 Peter, isn't it? That though we're under pressure in this world, the enemy that we fight is sin and Satan. Not seeing those around us as enemies to be crushed, but as the lost who need to be found. As the dead and dying who need to be saved. As neighbours who need to be loved. As a world that needs to be evangelised and reached with the life-giving message of the gospel. And the shape of our lives and the content of our words need to match the reality of Jesus' lordship and the resurrection hope that he gives us. Hope-filled words, hope-shaped character and a hope-directed patience 
Have a look at verse 18 with me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. I love this little paragraph. It has one of the clearest gospel verses that gets to the very heart of who Jesus is and what he has done and one of the most obscure verses that is impossible to understand in the New Testament. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Isn't that just such a clear picture of who Jesus is and what he has done? He dies on the cross for your sins. He is the righteous one who isn't deserving of that death and judgment. You are the unrighteous one who is deserving of that death and judgment. He takes it upon himself in order that you might have every obstacle to enjoying God forever removed. All your sin, the death you deserve, the judgment that rightly belonged to you, Jesus takes upon himself in order to bring you all the way to God, to be renewed and restored in your relationship with the God who made you and who loves you. And not only did he die, but he was made alive again. He was raised on the third day, never to die again. That's what it means that he died in the flesh and was raised in the spirit. It's the same Jesus who is physically raised from the dead. But the resurrection life that he has now is of a different kind, one that cannot be interrupted by death again, one that is not corruptible or fragile, but is permanent and glorious. And the amazing truth is that Jesus offers that kind of resurrection life to all who would trust and follow him, incorruptible, infatigable, I don't think that's a word, but it is now, right? That's the quality and the quantity of life that Jesus offers to all who would trust in his death and resurrection. But what's going on in verses 19 and 20? Well, here I went to the books during the week. Karen Jobes has got, I think, the best commentary on 1 Peter, And I went to her because she's helped me so much in this series. And she says, this verse takes us into a labyrinth that is hard to get out of. It's clearly overwhelming and there's no one that has any certainty. (laughs) I thought maybe the reformers of the 16th century, what did Martin Luther have to say on it? He says, I cannot understand it and I cannot explain it. And no one has been able to explain it. And so I went to Jason Au, <laughs> who's done a lot of work on this, these verses. 
And this is what Jason's explanation is, and this is his translation up on the screen. I think, Levi, throw something up. That one, that's it. This is Jason's version, the authorised version from Jason. Right? After Jesus being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, those who were previously disobedient. Full stop. When God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So there's an example that Peter uses uh, in, in the case of Noah, but those who were previously disobedient, those who previously hadn't believed the gospel, well, those are the people that Jesus preached to in his, when, after his resurrection. The New Testament talks about Jesus going and proclaiming the gospel to many people after his resurrection. People like the Apostle Peter, who couldn't believe it, who Jesus persuaded. Peter goes on to talk about the example of Noah, giving the example that God waited patiently and God graciously rescued when he flooded the world, only eight people. People who had entrusted themselves to God. People who looked weak and unimpressive. Only eight were saved, Peter says. Christian, if you feel insignificant, if you feel sometimes that you've chosen the weak and the foolish team to be on in this world, Well, guess what? That's the winning team in God's economy of salvation. As God has always chosen to work through not massive numbers, but small, not powerful and impressive, but weak and apparently foolish things, like the cross, that looked to all the world like the greatest defeat, was in reality God's greatest victory over sin and death and Satan. And the picture that this passage gives us is that there is nothing in all the universe that is outside the lordship of the Lord Jesus. That if it feels at times when you're under pressure, when you're suffering when you feel weak and insignificant, that maybe there is something in this life or the next that Jesus hasn't quite conquered, that has the power to to ensnare you and to take away your life and your hope. Peter wants to reassure you that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is reigning, that there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God. And he promises to walk with you into the victory of his resurrection life. And so patiently entrust yourself to the God who loves you. Take the opportunities that you are given in this world to speak hope-filled words to those around you and continue to grow in the hope-shaped character that makes you look and sound a lot like the Jesus who saved you while you wait for him to return. Why don't we pray together?
hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote, Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be. Till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Our Father, may Jesus be for us the sweetest comfort, the greatest strength, the abiding love and joy that we need to persevere in this life, even when we face pressure. We pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who have such a living hope in Jesus' resurrection life that we are shaped by his character, that we overflow with his words and that we live patient and hope-directed lives while we wait for his return. Amen.